This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma-sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerooted Podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca. To have as my guest here today, my most esteemed teacher, um, so dear to my heart um, that I love. Um, Jack Cornfield, Dr. Jack Cornfield, the author of A Path with Heart, uh, the founder of Spirit Rock and uh, Insight Meditation Center, um, really set me on the path of becoming an embodied anti-racist. So I'm going to tell him he is guilty of, of having pivoted me in that direction. And um, and now is here today to talk uh, about to becoming an embodied anti-racist. What does that really mean? How did the Buddhist teachings and the Dharma and mindfulness help support that? And what was the Buddha's lived experience? And was it in fact an anti-racist lived experience? And what maybe can we learn from that and take from that? So welcome, Jack. It's such a pleasure to see you. Oh, I'm very happy to be here and to see you, Francesca. Such an honor. We met actually probably five or six years ago, and I was sort of uh, in a place of being a bit distressed. And um, I remember taking not only the mindfulness certification with you, but having read your books and studied your teachings and really getting into a place of feeling as though there was a safe refuge in the relational field, um, as you are a clinical psychologist, in addition to your, uh, you know, former monk status and current mindfulness, um, you know, teaching that you do and Dharma teaching that you do, that there was this place of feeling safe, seen, and soothed. And I think that as therapists that we're talking to, that there's a way in which perhaps keeping that in mind while doing anti-racism work, that we can help train ourselves to feel safe, seen, and soothed as we go forward to do some of this work that can feel a little bit daunting sometimes. And um, I just want to really just sort of name that and say that um, we're just sort of holding space as we sort of embark on this uh, journey together and that we're holding one another uh, as we uh, sort of address these sometimes challenging or charged areas. So... As we begin, um, for this conversation, how shall we begin? What would you like to say about how the Buddha uh, and how Dharma teachings and mindfulness might be able to help support what's happening in the world today with the uprising, with the protests, and um, how we can use that to help support meeting this moment? Well, I want to take a step back. Thank you for this. And first, just take a breath and invite everyone else to take a breath and settle themselves because we're talking about matters of the heart um, and they're very genuine and at times very difficult as you say and I remember asking my great meditation master what is the dharma this is a complex word that has many meanings of your destiny or the teachings and so forth and he looked back and he said the dharma is the heart how we tend it how we connect with the heart of others and so even as we enter this fraught and painful terrain as therapists enter this painful terrain of racism and racial justice, um, know that this is something that you will, if you enter it honorably, that you will be forced in some way 
to enter it, not just with your mind, but with your own heart and your own spirit. And equally much, this becomes a critical thing in the therapy that you do. Um, there are ways at certain times in the past in training in psychology and psychiatry and psychotherapy, that therapy has been blinkered in a certain way. And what's talked about is the interaction there between two people, assuming it's an individual therapy, um, and their life circumstances, and very little attention given to what's happening in the world around. And yet we know in every possible way um, that what's happening right now with the pandemic of COVID, with the crisis um, from it, the next crisis, which is the economic crisis, with the social justice crisis, for social and racial justice, with the climate crisis, that these are affecting the, the heart and the DNA of everyone who walks in the room. All the information about the epigenetics and cellular uh, and telomere um, response to the world around shows our interdependence. So to make a safe space, no matter what you do, whether it's for white uh, clients or whether it's for BIPOC, black, indigenous people of color, part of what's critical is to be able to say, this is what's happening now. And we are in this milieu where there's this very strong and painful searching for racial and economic justice. Um, and so we'll pay attention to that and how it affects us, as well as the other things that we do. By naming it, you normalize it, you bring it into consciousness, and you say, this is part of what it means to be, to be present for one another and to find whatever their goal in therapy is of kind of an inner well-being. Because if we shunt aside what's happening in the world, we'll never find inner well-being. And I remember two conversations, one I had some months ago with Vivek Murthy, who was the U.S. Surgeon General under Barack Obama. And he said that in his tenure there, he found that the majority, more than half of what walked through the doors of our hospitals, emergency rooms and clinics was emotionally based, emotional problem, mm -hmm. not physically based. The physical was a response to it. And so in our work, we have to acknowledge this field of feelings and longings and fear and confusion and, uh, you know, hopes, all of these things that are extended in a weave from ourselves also to all those around us. And in that way, doesn't mean you have to make that the focus of the therapy, but for it to be safe and honorable, it has to be included. So that's the mm. first kind of preface that I want to say. Yeah. And, and, and then maybe I'll try to answer your question if you want me to go on. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, no, of course. Which is um, that in the deepest way, um, because it's not possible to separate the inner from the outer, and that's a fiction, um, the, the Dharma of liberation or the teachings of liberation from the very beginning in the Buddhist tradition speak to both inner liberation and outer liberation. And the inner liberation is a liberation from greed and hate and fear and prejudice and ignorance. And at the deepest level from the illusion of separateness that we're somehow separate from the air we breathe and the earth we live on and the, all the other beings of life. That is a profound liberation. And at the same time, those teachings have been held a, in a community, in a container for thousands of years, which recognizes the dignity and nobility and value, the Buddha nature of every single being and every human being, especially. The texts begin, O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Awakened ones, remember your true nature. And then with that, going back historically to the time of the Buddha, he very directly went against the caste and racist systems of India, um, which even to this day um, 
condemn millions of people to um, a kind of racist social hell, basically. If you're born as an untouchable child in India and you grow up, you're taught that if your shadow crosses the food of a high caste Brahmin, it has to be thrown out because you're impure mm. by nature. And what the Buddha did was to invite and bring in the lowest caste people. And as he did, the elders were the ones that got the respect. He, they became elders. And the, you know, the high caste and Brahmins who came after all had to get down on their knees and bow to them. And he did it deliberately to inspire people to see the fundamental dignity and nobility of every human being. Mm -hmm. That's such a beautiful image. And, you know, I grew up, um, although obviously um, more familiar now with um, the Buddhist teachings uh, in a Catholic church. And one of the stories that, um, you know, I remember stuck out for me was that um, there was the washing uh, of the feet of the um, woman who was a woman of the night. And there was also the um, sort of teaching of, uh, uh, you know, the lever, you know, colony, the being with those who are um, sort of untouchable in a different way. And uh, really just sort of the spirit of what that is lives in so many traditions, um, not just in the Buddha's legacy, but also um, in what is really, as you say, Dharma, rightness, balance, truth, love, um, and accessing that place in the heart within us that, that knows what to do there. Yeah, and the point is not for anyone to become a Buddhist. You can spare your friends and family from some new religion, religious fervor upon you, but to become a Buddha, to become someone who sees with the eyes of compassion and the wisdom of the heart and lives that way. And then it's Buddhist, Christian, you know, it's the, it's the mercy of Allah and it's the wisdom of the indigenous grandmothers and all of that carries the same truth. I think of my teacher, Gosananda, who was the Gandhi of Cambodia. He was also a friend and colleague, and he was part of the movement that got, that got the Nobel Prize for um, trying to rid the world of landmines, because so many children in Cambodia were losing their legs and losing their limbs from all these buried landmines. And he went to speak in Congress and he said, yes, we need your help and support in laws to ban landmines worldwide. He said, but before we do that, we have to eradicate the landmines in the hearts of people. Mm. That very source that anyone could see another human being and want to harm them in this terrible way. And when we remove the landmines in the heart, then we will naturally remove the landmines in the world. Yeah, that is such a beautiful teaching. And as you're saying it, I, I, I'm also remembering um, some of the stories that you tell about the, the longevity, like, you know, we're, we're sort of, we're doing this for the long haul. This isn't just like a one and done kind of a scenario. It takes a little while to, um, you know, do the uh, extraction, if you will, of the landmines, wherever they are. And um, another thing that occurred to me is something that I know uh, what His Holiness the Dalai Lama had been surprised by at one point, which was this concept of self-hatred in the Western world and was sort of surprised that there might be landmines that one was burying in one's own soil or had been buried in one's own soil unbeknownst to one or known to one that were sort of cause of a lot of fear and a lot of um, trepidation also. So can you talk a little bit about not just the outward ways that we can do that for others that may be different from us or unique from us, but also the inward way? Well, in part, what you're talking about, Francesca, um, is our human vulnerability, that we're all actually vulnerable beings. Um, and we're supposed to be, the poet Rilke says, ultimately it's upon your vulnerability that you depend. And this remarkable poetic line means that we are vulnerable to one another. You're vulnerable to all the people who stop at the red light so you can go through the green one and not die because they ignore it. You're vulnerable to the people around and to the fabric of the society. And of course, to how you're, how you're brought up and enculturated. Um, and then we find all these ways to shield and defend and protect ourselves. 
Some of them are useful and healthy. Many of them are not. Um, and so if we're kind of approaching the inner work, um, what we'll find if you are a person of color, most likely because of the centuries of racism where you were targeted and seen as lower, bad, different in some way, so that a, you know, a black or brown or BIPOC child walks into a store in certain you know, neighborhoods and people give them the eye like, you know, they're a dangerous person or a suspect or a unworthy. And that all gets internalized in a toxic and poisonous way and requires not just the inner work of great self-compassion, but the reclaiming of a kind of dignity. Um, and some of that is communal work. Some of it's individual therapy, but some of it is the communal work of people reclaiming their courage and their dignity and their identity. And that's been so in native communities and black communities and Latino communities and Asian American communities, all different ways. And it's a beautiful thing to see that kind of empowerment. Um, at the same time, for white folks as well, um, we internalize the various kinds of uh, judgments and oppression and around race, even if we don't consciously carry um, racist ideas toward others, all the most sophisticated studies from Harvard and other places show that there is um, understandably an underlying racial bias that we're even that we're unconscious of that we can hardly see. And when you start to pay attention, you see it all over. Oh, that I see that person that way and that way as soon as you see them. So you see that level of your own participation and you can't not, you can't do this right actually. What you can do is see the suffering and hold it in compassion and say, wow, we've all been in this web of lies, this web of illusions, and it's created enormous suffering. And let me hold this with compassion. And then the second part is there might be layers of self-blame and shame and self-criticism. Oh my God, I realized that I'm more of a racist than I thought. I'm not, uncon I'm not right. conscious. I haven't done enough. And that too is part of what needs to be held in compassion. You don't heal any of this unless there is some deep ground of seeing our common humanity and saying, yes, we're all in this together. We all, if you're willing to approach it you're willing it means you're actually willing to feel it and be in the suffering which is what it is and we all are learning how to hold the suffering and not let it be the end of the story because yeah. this is the most central buddhist teaching that the buddhist teaching starts with the first the truth of suffering and it causes greed fear racism prejudice hatred and so forth that creates our human suffering and that there's a an end to it, a path to the end through compassion and awareness and a shift of our perspective. Yeah, yeah, that's so beautiful. Thank you, Jack, because as you're saying that, I'm reminded of some of the things that um, Dharma teachers, uh, Dharma teachers Ruth King and Lama Rod have said, which is essentially you have to be willing to be heartbroken. You know, Ruth, Ruth King says, you know, racism is a heart disease, as you've said, and that essentially, um, you know, Lama's, Lama Rod's invitation is, is to be willing to just sit in the suffering along that way with a broken heart, knowing that in the collective brokenness, there is, um, there's a lot of strength and that it's not a stayed place, but rather a process through to um, another place of uh, perhaps a deeper connective liberation. My, my new friend, Valerie Carr, K-A-U-R, yeah who's an activist and um, filmmaker and kind of wonderful teacher, she uh, uses the metaphor of birth. And she talks about how when you're in labor um, and getting in the process of giving birth to a child, there's a phrase that's used for the last part of birth called transition when you move from the regular contractions that are pushing the baby toward and into the birth canal, um, then it becomes transition before the baby comes out. Mm -hmm. Transition is the hardest part. 
Um, and she says, maybe the darkness that we're in now, culturally, collectively, is not the darkness of the tomb, but it's the darkness of the womb. Mm. And that what needed, she said, I can hear my midwife saying, at times, breathe. At times, push. But you don't push all the time. Sometimes you have to stop and breathe and center. Sometimes you push, she said. And we as a culture are in this profound process that may give birth to a new consciousness. And we have to have both parts. We have to both breathe and we also have to push. And when I talk about breathe for a moment, what I mean is this, Mahatma Gandhi took one day a week in silence throughout the whole enterprise of dismantling the British empire. And there he was in India, um, in the middle of the worst years, and people would come to him and say, Gandhiji, there's hundreds of thousands on the people on the streets and they're protesting and people are getting shot and you have to come out. And he would say, I'm sorry, it's Thursday. This is my quiet day. Um, and he would listen quietly and try to come to the place of his deepest truth and his most powerful love and then ask himself, what is the most strategic or useful thing I can do with this love that I have. How can I act, not in a reaction and not out of fear, but how can I respond with the greatest integrity in this time? Mm -hmm. And so we need to do that, both as therapists and so forth, and in our roles, and invite the people that we work with in the same way. Um, as you say, it's Francesca, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Um, it's the, the course of changing the consciousness of 500 years of, or more of racism, more actually, in, when we look globally. Um, and we're participants in it. So to, to recommend and help people find ways like Gandhi to quiet their mind and tend their own body and heart so that they have the resources and the stability and the strength to be able to then enter into these difficult birth process around racism and around other things, economic justice, so forth, that we're faced with, but to do some from a steady place. And I heard a story yesterday from a colleague. I have actually my own story um, as well that's almost identical, but um, it was a friend who was... Uh, a Buddhist nun with the Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Zen, Vietnamese Zen master. And they were about to lead a very large retreat in September of 2000. And um, it was actually, it was just around like 2001. Um, uh, and 9-11 happened. They had gathered their teachers. The retreat was supposed to start in a few days. They were planning how they would hold it. And hundreds of people were coming. And 9-11 happened and everyone said, we've got to respond. We've got to put out, you know, teachings that will help people. We've got to use our press and our voices to help people see what's right and stand up. And Thich Nhat Hanh said, um, our plan was, go to, was to go to the beach tomorrow together and have mm -hmm. some quiet time on the edge of the ocean. And they said, but... but but Ty, their name for the teacher, all oh, this is happening. It's so, you know, it's so powerful. Everybody's caught. And he said, we're going to the beach. And they went, they spent a day by the ocean, reflecting, talking to one another. And then the day they came back, they wrote things and they responded. But they responded from such a deeper and quiet place of love really, and not fear of steadiness and not reactivity. And that becomes our work both as therapists, um, to model it in some way, but also to invite that and support that in the people that we work with. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And as you say that, I'm reminded of the story, and I believe it was also with Thich Nhat Hanh, when he was asked about what he would do. It must have been around the time when he was asked this question, were he to meet Osama bin Laden? And I think he said something along the lines of, I would be quiet, and then I would meet, I would come with my friends. 
like the people that, you know, I wouldn't go in alone, you know, or I would, I would, I would be accompanied in some way. And I might be getting that wrong, but it reminds me of the fact that oftentimes we feel extremely isolated and maybe what we need is a resource to kind of enter into what might be a challenging um, encounter. And that if we remind ourselves that we can open up to some support in this um, and some quiet time, as you're saying, to then come from a different place, perhaps our steadiness can be uh, that which is the medicine that's needed uh, rather than just a specific uh, yeah that, that peace or well-being or respect is not just the goal there but that it actually is the path as well that if we find and model that and learn it in ourselves people catch it from us and they feel it whether it's in our role as a therapist or in the family or in the community yeah and also to trust that difficulties are the path um, there's a, a fun story of Professor Francis Lamb at um, MIT, who is in charge of the part of the Agricultural Visioning Futures Project they have there. And in that project, they're looking at micronutrients and special wavelengths of light and all the things that can foster plant growth and how seeds evolve and things like that partly to look for ways to feed humanity and the, you know, the hungry of the world um, as we go ahead. And his graduate students came in, they, they got their greenhouses and doing all this and said, why don't we try playing music for the plants? <laughs> and Professor Lamb said, you mean like Mozart? And they said, yeah. He said, well, we're scientists. If you're going to do that, then make it a good scientific experiment. So they took three different isolated plots of the same plants. And for one uh, plot of plant, they played, no music was silent. For one, they played music of Mozart. And then he said, all right, you got Mozart. How about this other one? For the third one, they played Tupac. <laughs> and after some weeks, they measured their plants. Mm. And it turned out that the plants that listened to, to Tupac did better than the other two because the driving beat of that um, shook them and made them grow stronger roots. And if you think the biosphere in Arizona, which was created to mimic what would happen on Mars and people who lived in that for a year or two, they had trees in there with them. The trees were, you know, twisted and not very strong because there was no wind against mm -hmm. them. So mm -hmm. sometimes, as in this time we're in now, um, it is the difficulties that press upon us that also bring an equal uh, measure or can invite an equal measure of rooting ourselves in the earth, of remembering what we really value and coming from that place of care for ourselves and other and dignity. No. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Going. Well, <laughs> it's all good. I mean, we can go and go. Um, you know, a couple of things that you just said made me think of um, as you were doing this piece with the beat and the plants were really favoring that. Um, and that that was part of what was so much um, that was generative for them as living beings. Um, that in a way that's sort of what's uh, you know nourishing for us as humans and that Africans had their drums and 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 had all of the practices and indigenous folks and and that in in a way we're all indigenous to perhaps a locale that is not where we currently are like I'm on Canarse and Lenape land right now otherwise known as Brooklyn New York uh, in many circles however um, you know there was many things that came in those unnamed lands if you will before that um, is just uh, the land known as the land but these cultural practices like the heartbeat the drum representing that the plants responding to that the organicity if you will of life itself and the continuation what maybe is gained and lost by doing these practices solo collective you were mentioning a little bit about the group and sort of how can we perhaps look a little bit at the ways in which putting on a certain kind of therapy or 
perhaps an evidence-based practice or idea may not always be the solution that's needed. And just, you know, when we're discerning to what meets the moment or what's appropriate for healing, either as white-bodied or light-skinned privileged folks, or as, you know, anyone else for that matter, just as humans. You know, I think that the most healing thing, having done 40 years of therapy and trained in many, many traditions, written a book that I commend to people, not because I want to sell books, but I wrote a book called The Wise Heart, which is the subtitle is uh, The Universal Teachings of Buddhist Psychology, in which I try to articulate how you can apply the teachings of this, you know, millennia old psychology that is so profound in in modern life um in in the end um really good therapy is about love love and trust trust in the organism's capacity to heal and change that it's never too late to change and that with that love yes you can prescribe things you can prescribe thought practices or body practices but i think that the most profound healing comes when we see one another with the the eyes of love, when we see the secret beauty of that person in front of us, and they are seen in, in, in you know, they recognize that they've been seen. So in, in uh, last December, I spent time with Ramdas, who was a dear friend and colleague, and um, it was not long before he died. Um, and Ramdas, for those who don't know, was the author of this huge bestseller in the 60s, Be Here Now, and worked with Tim Leary on LSD things, and then became a, a great spiritual teacher. Um, and at the retreat that we were teaching together, Ramdas and myself and my beloved Trudy, my wife and others, on the last day, Ramdas gave out to all 350 participants um, a little set of beads with a thread from his guru's blanket, which was to him a kind of a precious transmission, um, and, and talked about how his guru had seen him with so much um, love that it changed his life. In India, it's called the glance of mercy. When somebody sees your beauty in a way that no one ever has, and you go, oh my gosh, I, I didn't know this about myself. And so he blessed these beads and they were passed out. He was pretty weak at that point. So he sat there and people were invited once they had their beads just to stand in front of him to receive a kind of silent blessing and he would gaze. And people would stand there and just start to weep because he looked at them with so much love not in spite of, but with all their humanity, you know, with their beauty and their foibles and their conditioning and their social whatever. And he looked at them with all their humanity and surrounded it with his love. And people just wept because they were seen in that way. And yes, he would give teachings. Here's a way to practice and quiet your mind. Here's a way to cultivate forgiveness for yourself or others if you need to. Here's a way to steady and find clarity. Here's a way to cultivate love for everyone you meet. All these trainings that are in Buddhist psychology, but underneath it all is that capacity. And the fact that we can't or don't see each other that way um, becomes the obstacle that we need to see through individually to live wisely that we need to see when we work with our clients and that we need to do as a culture collectively in a way we need a, a national truth and reconciliation process as south africa did um desperately need this i've talked to federal judges and colleagues and friends about how this and some people are working it already i've sort of been on the side of trying mm. to encourage um and in truth and reconciliation this was not an easy process. It meant that people who had done terrible, terrible things, um, tortured and killed people and so forth, were asked to tell the whole story, to speak honestly. And if they did, only if they did, then they wouldn't 
be pursued legally. They would not be punished for it. So it was a terrible process for people to have to listen to this, but it was also enormously healing because in our country, we have not dealt with the Native American genocide and the, you know, 400, 500 years of enslavement of people. Um, a lot of our culture is still fighting the Civil War, kind of in denial about it in some fashion or other. And until we can tell the truth and stand in that truth somehow, looking for reconciliation, say, all right, Hugh, who are we now? Can we get beyond this? Um, it's still going to be buried in some fashion. So the inner work and the outer work somehow have to come together. Yeah, yeah. I so appreciate that. And when you're saying that, it reminds me of the um, great teacher Jane Elliott's um, uh, example of um, having an auditorium filled with folks and asking, if I gave you a million dollars, would you change um, your status from white to black um, as a human being? And that um, there was not a, a, a rousing, uh, you know, standing up of that. And, and that people... I <laughs> right you know um but, but and, and you it. yes yes it, in that experiment it elucidated sort of just what actually we're talking about here and i think one of the things that i mean i'll mention now with you and i'll be curious to know how you might respond to this is in my own personal experience it it did and even in this psychoanalytic webinar that i was on recently last week for example by the Freudian society in manhattan and you know uh, it was like slavery, enslavement of people was something in the past, and we're here now grappling with this moment of inequity. And as I've dug over the last five years, again, having taken your invitation, and really actually remembering there was a period of about six months where I really, and you know, my family can attest to this, where I really felt like I was in quicksand. I really did not feel like, I mean, I had the Dharma, I had teachings, I had my practice, and that was enough along with friends and family to ground me and my own sort of inner nobility and dignity and I'm enough and I matter, like it's okay. But it was this period of, as I started to learn and as I still learn more and more, the way in which the systems were set up to dehumanize, literally not count people as people, literally enslave generations of mothers and children and you could never escape. It wasn't as though there was this seven years of indentured servitude and then you could earn your freedom. And that the division, you talk about the separation as Tara does, brought um, often very much about that, which keeps us so fraught in the body of fear and in that smaller place, that people were given certain opportunities as white people with land, even if they were poor. And, you know, people of color were not to create that kind of a division in a class way that has given rise to sort of, you know, the manifestations of, uh, of what we see here. And so it's very much a lived legacy. And I guess I'm trying to figure out how we can call in a leaning into doing some of the deeper work around the very hard truths and extremely ugly history that we've had to do and use the Dharma or mindfulness teachings or, you know, just sort of this sense of love for ourselves and for others um, and our common humanity to help support us in that very difficult, in my experience, um, learning of the reality of, of what has been done. So there's three parts that I think of when I listen to you and I feel. The first is, of course, acknowledging and learning the history, just as the truth and reconciliation, the story had to be told and people had to acknowledge this is the immensity of that suffering. And it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard for the heart to hold and the mind to, to it, it, um, it shakes us in some way of how human beings have treated other human beings for so long. So that's one piece. Um, the second piece that's maybe more important that needs to be acknowledged is to see that it's still happening, which is what you talk about. And that I know that any, you know, BIPOC, black, brown, whatever child walking in to certain neighborhoods or places, a young man, young woman, um, 
I mean, that's sort of the most obvious form, but it's there in a thousand forms. We'll receive the, 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 be the target of this racism in all kinds of ways, subtle and microaggressions and fear and so forth, as if to denigrate their very spirit of who they really are. Um, and, and then of course, seeing that it's still current, um, then we get, we have the, the deep task, whether it's as therapists or our clients and so forth, to kind of to pause, to quiet ourselves, and to ask, um, how do I respond to this? What's my response? And, you know, it's one thing to talk about privilege, which if you're in a white body, you have a kind of automatic get out of jail free card when the cops stop you compared to being in a black or brown, some other body. Um, but I like to think of it in a different way because when you talk about privilege, then it also evokes shame and guilt and what do I do and I don't deserve this or how am I supposed to atone for this, all that kind of stuff, which needs to be made conscious. I'd rather put it as um, you have, for whatever reason, you've been given uh, a birth or a status of privilege in this incarnation. And this is your assignment. Your assignment is to take the privilege that you have been born into and do something magnificent with it. Do something of value that's honorable. And if you see it as an assignment rather than as a badge of shame, or something to feel guilt about, then all of a sudden you begin to realize, all right, um, I can take this and I can respond to the world and I can actually make a difference. And there's small and large responses. There's the small responses of, if you're in a circumstance where people are speaking in ways that are racist or denigrating someone, that you stand up with love and interest and say, do you really mean that? Is that what you believe? You know, or, wow, I hear you saying that. How is that for you? Not so much as a judgment, but really just saying, uh, I, I hear that. Is this, you know, and in that way, you're inviting a different consciousness to happen all kinds of times and ways that happens and protecting people when you see it. But then, of course, there is the structural um, fabric of redlining and banks and economy and poor education and lack of healthcare and all the things that are built into the system that oppresses people of color. And that becomes a different task to, to search yourself and say, how can I contribute to the transformation and the healing of this? Um, what is my gift? And, you know, for some, it might be political. And I've been working on a campaign for, um, Buddhist and yoga teachers, of which there's thousands and thousands across the country, to help their students get out the vote. So then there's millions of yoga practitioners and meditation practitioners. Go and, you know, go online, go to, you know, getoutthevote.org and other things like that and help promote um, getting out the vote for everyone. That's, uh, you know, we need the voices of, of everyone here and empowered, you know, but there are a hundred other ways that you can find um, if you get quiet and you say, now this is part of what I, my assignment, what I'm here to do is to change the society I'm in. Um, and I have a piece I can contribute. You can't do the whole thing, but you can reach out and mend the part that your hands can touch. And for some, it might be political. And for some, it might be reaching out to the neighbors and community around or building bridges or for some it might be working on food and you know food deserts or there's a hundred ways to do it um and the thing is that to be able to do it over the long term you can't judge it by how quickly things change it, 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 this is a multi-generational uh, not just a process, but a, um, it's a multi-generational birth. You know, I think about elephant having 19 month pregnancy that this might be 19 years or 
1900 years, I don't, it almost doesn't matter how long it takes. It's that we face in the right direction. And then as Thomas Merton, the great Christian mystic said to a, a discouraged activist, he said, if you're attached to the results right away, you will continue to be discouraged. And you may find that even your best actions um, bear no fruit or sometimes even bring about their opposite. When you see this clearly, you step back and realize that what you must do instead is simply concentrate on the value, the truth, and the rightness of the work itself and let those seeds that are planted grow when it is their season. And in some way, I see us as planting seeds or watering seeds that matter. Um, and it feels good, just like someone who loves the garden plants seeds and tends it. You're like, yay, I'm supporting. But you don't grow the seeds and you don't make them happen, but you can water and tend. And somehow it feels good in the heart to say, I'm part of the team of gardeners of the heart of this culture to make, to plant seeds that are making, that are going to make a difference in the long term. And to yeah. trust, and to trust it. To trust every it. day, every day your body makes one hundred billion new red blood cells. You know, if your body can make a hundred billion new red blood cells in a day, the world wants to renew itself, and we just have to be willing to turn in that direction and take as long as it takes. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And, and, you know, as you were saying that, what was, what was um, coming up for me is a little bit about um, as we plant the seeds, uh, you know, and, and we water, tend the garden, as we recognize that this is not something that's one and done, it's not a quick process, we're committed. Um, I know a, a well-known trauma therapist said to me, I feel like now I have a second job. And I was like, well, you do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I didn't say you don't. I said, you know, you have a beautiful trauma model and you help a lot of folks with that as it's been. And now it's time to do something that's integrated in another way. And, um, you know, it's not perhaps the um, response that was desired, but I do feel like there was some truth in it. And I think that this idea of then wanting to do and wanting to particularly do for Black people is something that in my experience, I found that well-intentioned white people, white-identified, white-bodied, you know, it's a social construct and yet we're melanated differently, that this peace sometimes can be perceived as white savior complex or interfering, or then there's the piece around, I'll never do anything right. And so now I'm just going to retreat and go back into my snail shell. And I know that there's truth to all of those a little bit, but also how do we hold the fact that we're going to make mistakes, we're not going to do it right all the time, probably not a lot actually in the beginning especially, um, but that we're practicing and that we're learning and that we can bring a humility into this process as well and not just uh, uh, our efforts, if you will. Yeah, we have to, we have to go through that as part of the necessary healing. James Baldwin said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And so part of what's happening, um, and it's interesting that you mentioned her as a trauma therapist, is that she's now being invited to see that we live with a collective cultural trauma that is enormous that the biggest wound in our entire race and culture is really the wound of, wound of racism. Everything follows from it, the economic disparity and the crazy way we live and, and, and all kinds of things, that that's the core wound as far as um, what we carry. And so this becomes the great trauma work. And the experience is that when we enter trauma work, um, especially like this, because we're in the sea of it, whether it's therapists or just human beings in the culture, um, to do the work requires that we feel um, within ourselves um, all that it has cost, um, that you can't do it without suffering. 
And the way, the most obvious way the suffering happens is you do it wrong and you, you know, say things wrong and you, someone accuses you of being a white savior or someone says, you, you know, if you're silent, well, then you're acquiescing. And if you say something, you know, then you're right. taking over and you, you can't do it right. And that's because there's so much pain in it. And the people who are accusing you of doing it in that way or other are just talking from an, a well of pain. Um, and if you have somebody who has trauma and therapy and they say, Do you, you're just rubbing my nose in it or you're doing it, and you say, this is, this is the trauma that you're in or that we're in in this conversation. Um, and you have to be willing to be in it and say, yeah, I'm, I'll do the best that I can. Thank you. I'll learn what I can. Um, but we have to find our way to hold this pain individually and collectively. And again, I'll go back to James Baldwin where he says, I imagine one of the reasons that people cling to their hate and prejudice so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with their own pain. And so we as a culture tend to project the things that we don't want to feel on others. We're insecure. We don't know what the future is these days it's like powerfully in our face mm -hmm. but instead of acknowledging that we're insecure or we're not so powerful we blame we say our problems are because of the immigrants or the mexicans or the blacks or the gays or the you know latinos or the muslims or the whoever's the enemy du jour when i was growing up it was the communists you know now they're coming back around they're new we get we get to use them again because we can't bear to look at our own pain and our own insecurity and how we live our lives and live with one another. So in order to transform this individually and, you know, in working with others, we need to find our capacity. It's there to inhabit our capacity of the great heart of compassion that can hold all of this, not even to fix it, but to have the tears and the heart open and say, yes, this is what part of our human legacy. And the beautiful thing when we do it is that then we discover it's not the end of the story, as I said, that this is a part of our human legacy, but right next to it and right through it is also the beauty of our diversity and the cultures. You talked about the drumming from Africa and the indigenous drumming and the rhythms of every culture that's come together. Um, and the magnificence of humanity coming together and to realize that there is also a joy when we join hands with others and say, this is, this is the direction we're going in. If you want to use a metaphor, this is the, you know, you could say, this is the struggle I want to join, or this is the beautiful world of vision that I want to be part of building. Um, and we'll go through what it takes to do it. Yeah, that's beautiful. And that image of um, of hand holding, holding one another's hands, necessarily being interconnected, necessarily supporting one another, realizing it or not, I think is maybe perhaps one of the ways in which we can think about that it's 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 local. You say, you know, I, I know you've said this a lot in your teachings that um, yes, we're all one, and it's all you know, not two, and all these things. But we also have to remember that our social security number. So take care of yourself, put on your own oxygen mask first, sort of thing, like you said with Gandhi and yes. resting and resourcing and pausing, but then also being using that time not to escape, as as I think mindfulness has been co you know term mindfulness at times like as some you know panacea for 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 tuning out as opposed to tuning in or tuning more deeply into our own hearts and into as you say the the suffering of the world and using it with that discerning wisdom to hold one another with those hands and to see that in fact or really feel perhaps more than see um, that there's less difference actually yeah, thank you. That's beautiful. I have a passage I want to read from Margaret Wheatley, who is an activist and a, a systems theorist and so forth. Um, she writes, warriors for the human spirit. So she's using that metaphor, but it's spiritual warriors are awake human beings who have chosen not to flee. They abide. So that's the first step. 
that we're actually willing to be where we are in some courageous way. In doing so, they serve as beacons of an ancient story that tells of the goodness and generosity and creativity of humanity, which is what's carried us all for these millennia. You can identify them by their cheerfulness. You will know them by their compassion. When asked how they do it, they will tell you about discipline, dedication, and the necessity of community. And all these are that she speaks of are threads that are woven together. Um, one is to see the potential goodness. I mean, it's part of what, you know, some of our greatest leaders have seen, um, even in the most difficult times to, to rise. There is, even as we have this, you know, class, there are a billion acts of goodness happening in the time of this class around the world of parents putting rice gruel and scrambled eggs on their children's plate for breakfast and people who are pausing to help someone cross the street or, you know, or giving someone the parking space when they both got there at the same time or, or um, just smiling at someone who looks like they're having a hard time. Billions of those. And the news captures, well, is there something, you know, difficult and newsworthy? Because it strikes that fear part of our brain that gets really excited and it sells, you know, sells news. Oh, I know. But, but it's not that. Humanity actually cares for one another in this profound way. Uh, goodness and generosity, you can identify them by their cheerfulness. Now, there's a line. And I mean, there are times to weep. And in sometimes in this work and in doing anti-racist work and in caring for the world, you do weep and let, you let your heart be so broken, as you said, or broken open. But you can't live from that place and you can't bring healing. The healing actually has to have a, a foot. If one foot is in the world of compassion for the suffering, the other is the joyful spirit, you know? And I think again of activist Molly Ivins, a wonderful activist, she says, keep on fighting for freedom, freedom and justice, beloveds, but don't forget to have fun doing it, you know? Mm. And oh, having been out on the streets as an activist on and off for 40 or 50 years, um, that uh, you can do it out of anger and, or you can be out there um, and you can be out there and stand up for what matters and do it from a place of love. You can be out there and dance, you know, as in one demonstration I like to talk about, you know, with my daughter who's an immigration and asylum lawyer and all these others trying to protect the lives of people coming from countries where they were in danger. And there was a big jazz band and everybody's dancing. They were there, they were singing and chanting, but it wasn't an act of aggression. It was saying, we are here and we're gonna make art out of this. And, and even the cops and the, you know, the security people started smiling and dancing because they couldn't stop. Um, and there's something about knowing them by their cheerfulness that I see Thich Nhat Hanh having lived through enormous suffering or Archbishop Tutu in, in you know, or, or I think of Lehman Gaboi and uh, Ellen Sirleaf, the two women who won the Nobel Prize um, saying that their country, Liberia, used to be known for its child soldiers and now it's known for, their, for its women leaders. And there's such a good spirit in them or in Tutu and so forth to say, we've been through these times and it's we're, we will not let someone take our good spirit away. Beautiful. Dr. Jack Cornfield, my mentor and inspiration and really holding um, beautiful space and sharing these gorgeous teachings with us today. And just really want to say thank you so much for these stories, for your embodied presence, for your kindness, and for that glance of mercy. I'll never forget. Um, I think that was part of the portal. I was I was a waterfall of tears in the retreat. And you just said, how are you doing? <laughs> and you know, it was sort of opening the portal, not only to the waterfall of tears, which is the suffering that we've spoken about for the last hour, that is the reality of just being an embodied human, but also to the path through, which we also spoke about, which is the mindful path. Well, thank you, Francesca. I love you. you. Know we have this very loving connection, and you 
you just shine and the work you're doing in all these ways is, is so important. And I just bow out of gratitude and delight in seeing your, your spirit spreading in all these ways. So thank you. And thanks to everybody who listened and I wish you all well in your, you know, in your work. Thank you, Jack. Pleasure. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.